0: A great American president, Abraham Lincoln, said that his country was the last best hope of Earth, a nation with a special mission to save mankind. I'm Professor Adam Smith, director of the Rothermere American Institute at Oxford, and on this podcast, I'll be exploring how this powerful idea shapes America. 250 years ago... On the night of the 16th of December, 1773, following a stormy protest meeting addressed by Sam Adams, a group of probably about 40 or 100 men boarded three ships that were in Boston Harbour, just in front of me here. It doesn't look anything like it did in 1770s. Now, of course, there are tall glass and steel skyscrapers, but there is still a harbour here, and there's a replica ship just over there to my left. Well, taking care not to cause any unnecessary damage, even searching for keys in order to avoid having to force the padlocks, the boarders searched the ship's holds until they found what they wanted and then they tipped it into the sea. Huzzah!
1: And in these disguises and in this coded language, they very carefully, very meticulously descend into the holds, they haul up the chests of tea, they slash open the bindings, and they, with axes, um, splinter open the chest, tossing the, the planks of wood and the tea into the harbour.
0: The cargo they destroyed was owned by the East India Company. It was 342 chests of tea, an estimated value of £10,000. The tea didn't sink very easily, but lay on the surface of the harbour in clumps around the hulls, uh, I can sort of imagine the clumps of uh, tea in front of me now bobbing around on the, the murky water this evening. In London, the Boston protest united the hawks and the doves. If Parliament were to have any
2: authority over the 13 colonies at all, they, they couldn't allow this kind of thing to happen and go unpunished, right? Then, you know, effectively, if they allow this kind of thing to to pass, then, you know, then it's it's basically sending the message that uh, that Parliament and its officials have no authority in the colonies at all.
0: Friends of the colonists like Edmund Burke now rallied behind Prime Minister Lord North. Parliament rapidly passed the coercive acts, named by the colonists the Intolerable Acts, that aimed to bring the upper Tea colonists to heel. The die was cast. Well, the story of the Boston Tea Party is as familiar as the shots at Lexington and Concord or the Declaration of Independence in America's origin myth. But what's the real legacy of this famous act of resistance? For a political culture so firmly rooted in the protection of property, is there an irony in its famous act of protest involving the destruction of property?
1: I'm Stacey Schiff. Um, I've written most recently on Samuel Adams. Uh, the book is called The Revolutionary Samuel Adams. And I've written as well on um, Benjamin Franklin, his years in France, on the Salem Witch Trials and um, as far afield as Cleopatra.
2: My name is Benjamin Karp. I teach at Brooklyn College and the Graduate Center at the City University of New York. Uh, I've written books on the coming of the American Revolution, the Boston Tea Party, and the burning
0: of New York City in 1776. Ben and Stacey, thank you both very much for joining me. Ben, can I start with you? Let's just briefly sketch out the background uh, here. Why were Boston merchants, and also we should say Merchants and uh, other colonists in other cities as well, so aggravated by the Tea Act in 1773.
2: I mean, the Tea Act was not going to levy any new taxes, right? But uh, what it was going to do was make it easier for the East India Company, a monopoly company, to sell directly to the American colonists in a way that was going to make tea less expensive for the colonists. And so writers like Samuel Adams worried that this was going to seduce the Americans, into paying the already existing tax that had been put in place in 1767, seduce Americans
0: into paying a tax for which they hadn't given consent. So the East India Company has the monopoly on the the bringing tea from China to London. Previously, what had happened, as I understand it, is that the East India Company had then been compelled by law to then auction its tea off to merchants, who included American merchants, who would then take the responsibility and also therefore the profit of shipping it from London to the colonies or to wherever else. The difference now was that the East India Company were going to be able to do that themselves and thus take the profit, which was... A legislative effort by Parliament to, in effect, give them a kind of bailout by giving them these additional privileges. That, that was the situation in summary, is that right? Yeah, that's absolutely correct. And Stacey, then, let's talk about this fascinating character about whom you've just written this brilliant biography, Samuel Adams. Uh, He's often given a kind of starring role in this story of the Boston Tea Party. We can talk about whether he deserves that starring role or not as as we go through the conversation. But tell us first who he was, how he fitted into Boston society and how his views on the British Empire and the, the conflict with the government in London had been evolving in the months and years up until this moment we're talking about 250 years ago.
1: He is a uh, well-born son of Boston who has, by this time, pretty much made himself one of the chief opposition leaders in Boston. He's a penniless, by now 51-year-old um, man really of no profession whatsoever, except that he has been over the years turning out a tremendous amount of newspaper writings against the crown and has kept a careful eye on what he calls the invasions of American rights and liberties. And really, his objections to this new tax on the tea is that it is essentially forcing the Americans to acknowledge with every mouthful of tea the supremacy of Parliament.
0: The governor of Massachusetts, um, Hutchinson, was a strong loyalist. And did he have any kind of personal stake in this Uh, in this new situation? And did he have personal reasons for wanting the tax to be paid appropriately on the East India Company tea?
1: There are six merchants to whom the tea has been consigned in Boston, and two of them are Thomas Hutchinson's sons, and two of them are Thomas Hutchinson's relatives, and the other two are Thomas Hutchinson's friends. And that was precisely (laughs) the kind of elite grasp on power, um, stranglehold, to which Samuel Adams was essentially opposed.
0: It's a form of corruption.
1: That's certainly the way he would have seen it.
0: So for, for Sam Adams and for others like him, Stacy, was there quite a lot of work that had to be done to get people riled up about this? Right. Because, because on the face of it, I mean, if you're an ordinary consumer, women among the, the preeminent purchasers of, of consumer goods, they're going to get tea more easily and more cheaply as a result of the Tea Act than before. So on the face of it, you'd think, why should people get so angry about this? Did Sam Adams have to work hard to persuade people that this was a threat to their liberties?
1: Yes, but the equation on the American side between liberty and tea had to be forcefully reinforced um, over and over again. And Adams does that um, continually over these years, but particularly in the months when... Boston begins to anticipate the arrival of the tea. And, and as Ben has pointed out, they are egged on by other colonies who are basically saying, you know, we, you have this reputation for being obstreperous. Why don't you show us, you know, what you can do? We're counting on you. Only by sol- only in solidarity can we head off this maneuver. Um, you know, please don't let us down. But Adams needs very much to to reinforce that equation. And one of, his, one of his acts of genius actually early on is to involve the women and children of Boston in his efforts to bring them into the fold to make sure that they too understand what's at stake here and are willing to enter into boycotts and protests. And he be- very much makes it a point that women who are having these um, parties are drinking chocolate and coffee, they are not drinking tea, that there should be some taboo about the very act of pouring a cup of tea.
0: You mentioned boycotts there, Stacey, and there had been over the preceding what eight years various attempts, some more successful than others, to use consumer boycotts as a, a as a mode of protest. Ben, question for you. Why not just adopt that strategy this time? Right. So you've got this tea coming in from the East India Company. It's going to be shipped to these consignees in four American port cities. Why, not, why didn't the, the, the patriots, the people like Sam San Adams, just redouble their efforts to get people to agree not to buy it? That would have achieved their ends perfectly well, would it not?
2: Sure. I mean, the boycotts were already supposedly in place. Uh, But I think the fear was that once the tea was landed on American shores, right, that it would one way or another enter into the American marketplace and that people would not be able to resist it. So
0: they couldn't really trust the people.
2: They knew that people loved tea, right? That they were addicted to it. You know, caffeine is addictive. That they, you know, saw it as an important part of their social rituals and daily life. You know, even with the boycotts going on, there were many people who surreptitiously or ostentatiously drank
0: tea and continued to drink tea. So, in the end, there were three ships. I think the first ship was called the Dartmouth, wasn't it? That arrived with East India Company T as part of its cargo, possibly not even the whole of its cargo as I understand it. And as soon as the ship arrived, the clock started ticking and people started getting agitated. Can you just briefly explain that for us, Ben?
2: Yeah, sure. When a ship arrives in an American seaport, uh, you have 20 days to unload any dutiable goods aboard and pay the taxes on them. Uh, If not, you are liable to seizure by customs officials or the Royal Navy. So the clock is ticking in that respect. And the, you know, the Americans, the Boston Sons of Liberty can put pressure on the consignees to be sure, but they have a couple of other pressure points as well. One are the ship captains and the ship owners, right, to try and pressure them to turn their ships around and go back, which was technically illegal, again, if you have dutiable goods aboard. Uh, and then, you know, but, but what those ship captains and ship owners are going to claim is, hey, I, I don't want to lose, you know, my entire ship uh, if, if, you know, to the Royal Navy, if that happens, you need to make sure that um, that I have permission from the Customs Service or from the Massachusetts governor, Thomas Hutchinson, before I can send my ship back to London with the tea still aboard. And so there's some hope that that um, that those
0: officials can be pressured as well. So they tried to get a pass from Governor Hutchinson to give them permission to not land the T, and Governor Hutchinson doesn't give them that pass. So tell us about this public meeting that happens in South Church in Boston. I think the first of all meet in Faneuil Hall, and Faneuil Hall isn't big enough, and so they move to the largest available building in the city, which is South Church. Adams is one of those involved in calling this meeting and speaking at the meeting. I know he's not the only one, but um, but he's such a charismatic and interesting figure, and so and you've written about him. So I want to know more about him. So tell us, sketch out that scene for us in the in the church, uh, Stacey. Okay.
1: So there seemed to be, I mean, part of the situation here is the clock is ticking and these appeals are being made, you know, left and right. I mean, the other key character here is this 23-year-old ship owner, a member of the ship owning family, Francis Roach, who has the unenviable task of having to ride off to the country home of of Thomas Hutchinson, the governor, to apply for this permission on on a wet night while the entire town of Boston is essentially sitting on needles in the Old South Meeting House, waiting to hear what kind of resolution he may be able to deliver. But during that time, Samuel Adams and um, his close colleagues, Dr. Young, Dr. Warren, um, John Hancock, are delivering speech after speech, essentially trying to keep the fever going and to bide their time as the clock is ticking.
0: What what kind of language are they using? What are they warning will be the consequences if the tea is landed?
1: I I don't think they could often enough stress that were that tea to be unloaded, American liberties lay in ruin. And all sorts of solutions have have flown around town. You know, should the ships be burned? Should the tea be sunk? All kinds of sort of violent ideas have made their way around town. There's a hint of menace that's been in the air for days. Nobody
3: seems to know what's going to happen. This is the Old South Meeting House. It was built in 1729 as a Puritan space of worship. Uh, the Puritans, though, did not believe that this space was more sacred than any other space, so it was used for civic gatherings. Also in Boston, it was. Uh, it's hard to imagine now. It's dwarfed by all the tall buildings, but it was the largest space in <laughs> colonial Boston. It's a
0: very fine. It's a very, very fine room. I've not been in it before.
3: It's gorgeous. It's really nice. It has about 300 years of architectural changes reflected uh, on the interior.
0: Okay, just tell me your name. Is that- uh,
3: my name is Lucy. I'm the uh, exhibition and interpretation coordinator here.
0: And what were these? Tell us about these um, partitions around the
3: yeah these are box pews they're pretty vernacular to new england architecture especially in the early 16 and 1700s uh, they're you know sold to specific families they pay rent to the church in order to sit in these spaces uh, they're also very good for reflecting the social hierarchy in these buildings only the most wealthy people would be able to sit in in these box pews on the ground floor you have kind of the working class up on our first gallery and then enslaved and black people regardless of whether or not they could pay to have a box pew were up in our second Gallery.
0: And this room would have been absolutely packed.
3: Absolutely. And you have to, you know, it's December when you're talking about the tea party, so it's very cold in this building. I'm sure people wouldn't mind huddling up next to each other. Different reports say different things, but our guess is somewhere between three to four thousand people that it's night. It's
0: a solid brick built building. It's an absolutely beautiful space with these lovely um, classical <laughs> windows.
3: It is gorgeous.
0: Arched windows. Thank you so much. Yeah. There were
2: supposedly thousands of, of people uh, packed into this meeting house, you know, for, for 23-year-old Francis Roach. It must have been extremely intimidating for him to be, you know, walking through this large crowd and having to give an account of himself when really he was basically a whale oil merchant and, and, and just wanted this problem to be over so that he could bring a whale oil shipment back to London. Uh, and so he's he's forced to deal with this. and uh, And you have this very menacing crowd and when he comes back from hutchinson's country home in milton and says i'm sorry but the governor won't let me go the crowd actually does say okay we we see that you're blameless right that you were that you were put in a terrible position and you know we're not going to hold this against you uh, but nevertheless he is the one who has to uh, bring this news to the to the bostonians uh, that they essentially are going to have no other choice but to have the tea landed that night because the governor would not give permission the ships to go back to London with the tea aboard,
1: And, you know, you have to feel so bad for Francis Roach. I mean, he's really, he's under such pressure here. At one point, he, he makes this plaintive plea of, you know, I don't see how, why I should have to be the one to stand on the front lines of patriotism here. You know, why is this all falling on my shoulders? He's really a man caught in the middle. But in any case, he he, he does come in that evening and he explains that that Governor Hutchinson is not going to waive the regulations. And there seems to be a very quick discussion at that point with Samuel Adams who will say something along the lines of, we have done all we can for the salvation of this country, which does not seem to have been um, a detonating line at the time, but which later historians turn into a detonating moment.
0: Almost as if it's like a sort of code word, secretly agreed in advance, that when he says that...
1: Yeah, But it's 19th century code, not 18th century code, exactly. Um, And shortly thereafter, you hear whistles and you hear war whoops, and a bunch of the small contingent of people in the meeting house begin to melt away. And slowly there is this understanding that something is happening um, on the wharfs, and the several thousand people who have wedged themselves into the meeting house um, proceed to the wharf where they see this contingent of people Disguised in rather fanciful and clearly fairly improvised costumes, um, suddenly heaving tea chests up out of the holds of the ships.
0: Ben, so by this time it's what? It's early evening. It's six pm, seven pm. But it's it's December. It's 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 dark. And Stacy just mentioned there that some of the men involved in this protest down on the wharves were dressed up and they've blackened their faces. But there's also this famous business about them being dressed as Native Americans. W- what's the basis for that? Why, wh- is, it, is it true? Why, why would they dress as Native Americans?
2: People who were most in the inner circle of, of planning in advance for this event were dressed in more elaborate Indian disguises and actually communicating with the other men through mock Indian dialect as a sort of code. Uh, But there were other men who joined somewhat last minute or more spontaneously. And so they just kind of wrapped a blanket around themselves and maybe blackened their faces.
0: But why would they dress up as Indians? Why would they do that?
2: I mean, the one thing that we can say for sure is that these disguises were not meant to hide anyone's identity. I mean, this is a town of 16,000 people. Fewer than a quarter of them were adult men. Uh, Everyone knew who these guys were. The, The disguises were instead meant to send a message. You had better not say anything about who we are. Right. So there's that level of what the disguises were meant to, to, to do. But as far as why Indians, you know, if you look at political cartoons from the day, right, America is often represented as an Indian man or Indian woman. And so there was this idea that, like, oh, we are dressing ourselves as something emblematic of America as opposed to Great Britain. I think there was also a suggestion that Native Americans were fearsome. They were fiercely protective of their rights. And that, you know, and that that ethos is something that the, uh, the colonists are trying to emulate. There's even a suggestion that the Indian disguises were meant to be a bit of a pun, right? The East India Company, right, and destroying the East India Company tea requ- oh, yes, right? required American Indians yes. to kind of stand <laughs> up to parliament.
1: Samuel Adams and his cohorts had often been written off as Samuel Adams and his mohawks. This had been a term of derision that had been applied to them for some of that street theatre, some of those crowd actions, and that there seemed to be a feeling among the colonists that if they were going to be treated like these primitives by the powers that be in London, they, they, they may as well play up the role.
0: When the news of the destruction of the East India Company's property reached London, the reaction was pretty swift and fierce. It had the effect of galvanizing even those who had up until this point been very supportive and sympathetic to the case of of the colonists. The coercive acts which were passed by Parliament as effectively as a means of punishing Boston and with the hope, the unfounded hope that somehow perhaps Massachusetts could be separated from the rest of the colonies, a kind of classic divide and rule strategy. But these acts were pushed through Parliament, not without any opposition, but really with, with substantial support, even among those who previously might not have expected to have supported the ministry on this. Tell us a little bit more, Ben, about those coercive acts and their role. I mean, it's often said that the Boston Tea Party was the trigger for the American Revolution. Perhaps we could say, would you agree more accurately, that it was the Boston Tea Party triggered the coercive acts... And that was the point where it becomes very difficult to see how some kind of armed conflict is, avo- is avoidable.
2: Yeah, I think that's right. The act that resulted most directly from the Boston Tea Party was the Boston Port Act, because that effen- essentially says we are going to close the port of Boston to all traffic and basically throw almost everyone out of work until Boston, as a town, repays the East India Company for its losses. Uh, and the other acts were really designed to kind of prevent this kind of thing going forward. I mean, one of the issues is, right, the British troops are right there in the harbor. The British warships are right there in the harbor, but they can't act without the approval of the governor. And the governor can't act without the approval of the, his council. And his council is appointed in part by the Massachusetts House of Representatives. And so they are unlikely to advise the governor to, you know, have a kind of military I- interruption of a, of a protest. And so what the Massachusetts Government Act was going to do is two things. First, the councilmen are now going to be appointed directly by the empire and its appointees rather than elected by the the Massachusetts Assembly. Uh, And also it's going to limit town meetings so that you can't have these town meetings be a source of, uh, you you know, of, of these protests again and try and alter, really, the Massachusetts Charter, uh, which had already been a point of dispute in the the 1600s. And then you have the Administration of Justice Act, which was going to allow anyone who was standing capital trials to ask for a change of venue and go someplace with a friendlier jury. Uh, And then there's a a Quartering Act, which also isn't uh, actually, very invasive, but it's it's then later interpreted as oh the, they'll be able to foist uh, British troops on our houses uh, on a whim. So th- this th- this basket of acts altogether, they are seen as a sufficient curtailment of liberties. That it's not just the people in Massachusetts who are aroused and angered by this, and they and they begin agreeing to send delegates to the First Continental Congress in September of
0: seventeen seventy four. And Ben. Tell us a, just a little bit more about what the rhetoric is in London. Is it the destruction of property that is so offensive? Is it the scale of the destruction of the property? What is it that really riles the, the British establishment so much about this performance in December 1773 in Boston Harbour?
2: I mean, I, I don't think they see it as a mere act of property destruction, but as property destruction with a very specific political valence. And so they entertain the idea briefly... Uh, about even trying to prosecute people for treason, although they give that up because there's no way they're going to be able to uh, pull together sufficient evidence. But I think there was really a feeling that Boston had really been a thorn in the side of attempts to enforce, uh, you know, various acts of Parliament, and that Boston really needed to be taught a lesson. Ukraine is in fact alive, huzzah! <laughs> so it's
0: a very good thing we didn't throw him over. <laughs> I'm standing here on a replica ship in Boston Harbour. It's such a lovely, sunny afternoon. Well, I'm standing here on a replica ship in Boston Harbour, the Boston Tea Party Ship and Museum, and they do such an amazing job here uh, in the way that only Americans can in museums where they have first-person impersonators, actors, telling the story, and we've all been given characters, and we've just been in a replica of the meeting house, and Sam Adams has led us... Down to the shore, and we're here now on the ship about to chuck some tea into the harbour. And everyone's having a great time huzzaring away. We've been talking about the destruction of the tea, but this episode is famously known as the Boston Tea Party. Who calls it that? When does it start to become known as the Tea Party? That's a very gentle sounding name for the events we've been describing.
2: Yeah, no one uses that phrase until the mid-1820s. So 50 years after the event, they begin to call it the Boston Tea Party. And the late Alfred F. Young kind of theorized that this was either a a working class way of kind of mocking upper class tea parties, or it was an upper class way of whitewashing what had been a really menacing and almost violent event. Uh, And so either way, it's this way of kind of taking the punch out of um, out of what used to be called the destruction of the tea in Boston Harbor, which is a much harsher sounding event. So, yeah, it's in the 1820s and then it really kind of catches on in the 1830s and then becomes the permanent name for
0: this event. This genteel sounding term, the Boston Tea Party, it makes it seem um, like a, a bourgeois genteel uh, event what what kind of uh, sort of ideological work as it were is that renaming doing not just in the 1820s and 30s but over the kind of the long history of the, the 200 years since that's written up in every American schoolbook uh, history book as the Boston Tea Party what do you think that naming is doing for the people who learn this story of the coming of the American Revolution
1: it's it's really a rather cheeky bit of repackaging isn't it this this lawless destruction of property suddenly reemerges as a kind of costumed caper um, and i don't think we, ter- we we really remember that obviously it's it's been very much sanitized obviously that's something that happens repeatedly to historical events and often a couple of generations after but what it does is it just drives home this idea that you know resistance to tyranny um trumps following the rules and that This was somehow a justifiable action. What Samuel Adams was trying to do at the time was to emphasize that this was a noble defense of liberties, not a reckless destruction of property. And I think that was the message that has endured.
0: It's probably as good as it's going to get. It's
2: really quite fun, isn't
0: it? It is quite fun. It's really fun. It's It's definitely a party, right? Yeah. (laughs) Why did visitors go to Boston today? And, and what do they get out of their experience of seeing where the tea party happened?
1: You, you not only get to board um, a replica ship, but you get to toss overboard a replica crate of tea. And I think that speaks to something of our of our continued fascination with what happened that night. I mean, there's something in a, in a sort of thrilling adolescent way. There's something so disobedient and so in your face and so remarkably surprising about it. And, and I think John Adams captures some of that the next day or the next week, when he when he talks about how there had been there had been something sublime and majestic and and dignified about that evening, it's such an odd combination of the of the violent and the high minded, um, which you could say goes right to the heart of American history in many ways. But there's I, I just think there's some sort of almost adolescent fascination with you know these people dressed up and they destroyed property, and that somehow is bound up with a noble defense of American liberties. It's just you know it's just fascinating.
0: Benjamin Carp and Stacy Schiff, thank you very much indeed for joining me.
1: Thanks so much, Adam.
0: Thank you. It's been fun. I was speaking to Stacy Schiff, whose latest book, The Revolutionary, is a biography of Sam Adams, and to Benjamin Carp, author most recently of The Great New York Fire of 1776. I'm also grateful to the staff of the Old South Meeting House and the Boston Tea Party Ships and Museum, and to Peter Orne for playing the trumpet. Over the last 250 years, the American Revolution has provided a host of competing usable pasts, a defence of traditional rights or a radical movement for change. The so-called Tea Party was a bloodless affair, but it was still a destruction of private property on a vast scale. In the 1970s, a progressive movement called for a new Tea Party, T-T-E-A, standing for Tax Equity for Americans. And then in the Obama years, a new Tea Party movement on the right rallied in opposition to the federal health care bill. Many objects have been ceremonially dumped in Boston Harbour over the years, including the federal tax code. To many Americans, it has seemed entirely fitting and proper that a protest against paying tax to a distant and unrepresentative government was a major trigger of their revolution. The Tea Party is a cosy folk tale, an origin story filled with colourful, fancy-dressed characters, which enables the jolly huzzaing of the tourists in Boston. But it's also a story of business elites leading a community-based attack on other people's property, a far more ambiguous legacy. You've been listening to The Last Best Hope, a podcast from Oxford University's Rothermere American Institute. This podcast is only possible because of the generosity of donors. If you would like to make a contribution, please get in touch through our website. Our producer is Emily Williams, and I'm Adam Smith. Goodbye.